Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This sermon is taken from the 2012 Annual Missions Conference. This is the afternoon service of Sunday the 27th of May 2012. Here's Brother Dave Kistler. This afternoon, I understand my dilemma. You've just had a meal. Now's the time you want to find a hammock or a sofa somewhere and stretch out and get some rest. And I understand that. But uh, I'm going to take a few minutes of your time. I want to try to share some things with you. And I'll promise I'll do my best to try to keep you awake and alert. Ezekiel chapter number 22, if you have your Bible. While you're turning, by way of introduction, let me ask you a question. Do any of you follow American football here in the country of England? American football? We call your football, we call it soccer over in my country. But American football is where they wear those pads and the helmets and they hit each other and try to knock each other down. Everybody know what I'm talking about? You have some idea of what I'm talking about? Anybody in here ever heard of the Miami Dolphins? The Miami Dolphins? Brother Carl, we have so many things in common. I'm just amazed. Brother Carl's a connoisseur of cooking and the Miami Dolphins and all that good stuff. Well, the Miami Dolphins back in 1972 and 73 were the only team in the NFL, which stands for the National Football League in our country, only team to ever go undefeated for an entire season. Brother Larry, they were 17 and 0. They didn't lose a single game the 1973-74 season. Every year now that the NFL has a season and the last undefeated defeated team goes down to defeat. Miss Jane, I jump up and down and cheer because I'm a rabid Miami Dolphins fan. I love the Miami Dolphins and they've not been playing well for the last number of years, but at least they hold the record of being the only undefeated team in NFL history. In 72 and 73, there was a defensive lineman that played for the Miami Dolphins. His name was Mike Colon, K-O-L-E-N. Mike played his college football at the University of Auburn, which is located in the state of Alabama. And uh, when he finished his eight years of playing in the NFL, he was hired to work as a consultant for the Auburn Tigers, which is a college football team. And the coach at that time of Auburn said to Mike Colon the following statement. He said, Mike, what I want you to do is I want you to help me recruit outstanding, talented young athletes to come to Auburn University, play football for Auburn University. Well, Mike Cullen said this, what kind of football players are you looking for? What kind of young men are you looking for? The coach at Auburn said this, he said, well, Mike, you know that player that when he's on the football field and he gets hit and knocked down and he stays down? Mike said, yeah. Coach, that's not the kind of guy we want. We don't want a guy that'll get knocked down and stay down. He said, but you know that guy that when he's on the football field, he gets knocked down, he gets back up. They hit him again and he gets knocked down and he stays down. Mike said, yeah, I know that kind of guy too. He said, well, that's not the kind of guy we want either. He said, but you know that guy that gets hit and knocked down, he gets back up. He gets hit again and knocked down, gets back up. Gets hit again, knocked down, gets back up. He just keeps getting knocked down, but keeps getting back up. Mike said, that's the kind of guy we want at Auburn, isn't it? And the coach said, well, no, that's not the kind of guy we want either. We want the guy that's doing all the knocking down. That's the fellow we want playing for Auburn University. He said, why are you telling us that? The coach at Auburn was on a quest to find a particular kind of young man that could be an athlete to play at Auburn University. You know, as important as that was to him, that's nowhere near as important as what God is doing. You know, God's on a manhunt. He said, Brother Dave, what are you talking about? I don't know how many of you will remember this, but in 1996, the Summer Olympics that are going to be held here in London this summer were hosted by the United States, and they were held in the city of Atlanta, Georgia. Just two days before the Olympics were to begin, a bomb went off 
in what's called Olympic Park in Atlanta, Georgia. Do any of you remember that bomb going off? There were a number of people that were killed and a whole lot more that were injured. And initially, the person that was selected, they thought he had been the one who had planted the bomb, was a security guard working security for the Summer Olympics that summer in Atlanta, a gentleman by the name of William Jewell. As it turns out, William Jewell had nothing to do with planting that bomb. He was totally innocent. But Brother Larry, initially, everything pointed to him. They thought he was the perpetrator. He was the culprit. Turns out he didn't have anything to do with it. His life, for the most part, was completely ruined. The guy who had planted the bomb, though, was a young man by the name of Eric Rudolph. Eric Rudolph, after planting that bomb and it going off in Olympic Park, fled to the mountains of the state I live in called North Carolina. He hung out in the mountainous regions of North Carolina and the FBI, Homeland Security, all kinds of police agencies searched for Eric Rudolph for 10 years. From 1996 to 2006, not long before we were here in 2006, they captured Eric Rudolph. I was reading about that not long ago. Do you know how much money was spent on that massive manhunt? It was called the largest manhunt in United States history, searching for one guy who set a bomb in Olympic Park in 1996. Do you know how much money they spent looking for him? Over $4 million trying to find one guy. Here's how they found him. An off-duty police officer was at a convenience store picking up a soda. He went back and got in his car. He looked back toward the store and there stood a guy outside the store making a phone call from a phone booth. And he said, that looks like the guy whose picture I've got, that Eric Rudolph fellow that we've been looking for for 10 years. That looks just like him. I would swear that's him. He picked up his police radio, radioed and said, look, I need some backup. I need some help. Come here. I think we may have caught the guy. And sure enough, some additional squad cars showed up and they took Eric Rudolph into custody, handcuffed his arms behind his back. He did not resist at all. And a 10-year, $4 million manhunt came to a conclusion. I got to thinking about this, Brother Steve. That's a lot of money, isn't it? To spend looking for one fellow. Do you know the Bible says this, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the entire earth. He's looking for someone through whom he can show himself strong. The Lord is looking for some men and some women who will serve him. Now I want you to look at Ezekiel chapter number 22 and verse number 30. Another verse that speaks of God's search for people that will serve him is found in Ezekiel chapter 22 and verse 30 where God himself is speaking and through his prophet he says the following words, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Now what I want to do very quickly this evening is show you three things and we're going to be done and head to the house. All right, number one, if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write this down, the setting. The setting. What I want you to see is the setting in which we find this incredible verse of Scripture. Why is God searching for a man among them? I sought for a man among them. By the way, who is the them that God is searching among to find this individual? In fact, if you'll look in the early part of Ezekiel chapter number 22, you'll find something that's very similar to the day in which we're living. In fact, in verse 1 of Ezekiel 22, the Bible says this, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, and this is Ezekiel commenting, verse 2 says, Now thou son of man, wilt thou judge, wilt thou judge the bloody city? 
Yea, thou shalt show her all her abomination. Then say thou, thus saith the Lord God, the city sheddeth blood in the midst of it. Now it's talking about the ancient city of Jerusalem. Do you know at this time in Israel's history, the ancient city of Jerusalem was full of bloodshed. Now again, I, I don't know enough about the, the, the country of England to speak as far as giving you specifics, but I do know this. I know what's going on in my country. Right now, we're in trouble in the United States of America. Bloodshed is occurring everywhere. You say, Brother Kissler, are people being murdered senselessly in the streets of the United States? And the answer is yes. In some places, they are. However, every single year, multiple thousands of unborn babies are killed in the United States. Preacher, there can't be anything more tragic and the shedding of the blood of the most innocent among us. And an unborn baby is the most innocent. Do you understand Israel's day, Ezekiel's day, was not a whole lot different than our day? Well, Brother Dave, surely there was somebody in Ezekiel's day that cared about truth, that cared about righteousness. What about, uh, what about the prophets in Ezekiel's day? Well, look if you would please at verse 25. I want to show you now the setting of this incredible verse I just read to you a minute ago. Look at Ezekiel 22, verse 25. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening the prey. They have devoured souls. They have taken the treasure and precious things and have made many widows in the midst thereof. I wish I had time to go into this and explain it more thoroughly, but I'll say this. In Ezekiel's day, as is the case today, the prophets, the preachers, were not men of righteousness. I want you to look at me. I want to talk to you a little bit from my heart. There's a nationwide in our country, worldwide fellow. If I named his name, you would know who I'm talking about. I'm not going to name his name because I'm not trying to be unkind. But Brother Larry, he was on a United States nationwide talk show and a talk show host asked this gentleman this. He said, is there really, is there really preacher just one way to heaven? I mean, are there not many ways to get to heaven? I mean, is there not a Catholic way and maybe there's a Baptist way and maybe there's a Lutheran way and maybe there's a Pentecostal way and maybe there's a Mormon way and maybe there's an Islamic way? Aren't they all the same, you know, just different ways but they're on their way to the same God? I mean, is it that way or preacher, is it really true there's only one way to heaven? Do you know what this nationwide, worldwide, vastly known, popular preacher said? I watched it and wouldn't have believed he had said it if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. He looked at the interviewer and he hemmed and hawed and he said, Well, you know, I'm no man's judge. I am no man's judge, so I mean, who's it? I mean, who am I to say anything? Really, I mean, you know, can I say there's only one way to heaven? Well, you know, not really. I mean, as long as you're sincere, you're going to get to heaven. Did any of you ever want to scream at the television set? Any of you want to insert your hands through the screen and grab the neck and shake somebody who has said something that's not true? And I'm wondering, why wouldn't you just say the truth? Folks, there is only one way to heaven. It's not a Baptist way. It's not a Lutheran way. It's not a Catholic way. It's a Bible way. Do you remember in John 14, 6, Jesus said this, I am not a way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Is there only one way to heaven? There is. And it's through Jesus Christ. You understand in our day, the preachers won't speak the truth because in our country, it's considered politically incorrect. Oh, you can't stand up and preach an exclusive message. There's only one way to heaven. 
Oh, you've got to incorporate everybody. Got to have an inclusive message. And Brother Larry, the day will come in this country for you. The day will come maybe even more quickly in my country for me. If I stand up and say there is only one way to heaven, because there is, do you know at some point my hands are going to be handcuffed behind my back. I'm going to be carted off to jail because I'm preaching a message that my country, for the most part, does not want to hear. It's too exclusive. Do you understand in Ezekiel's day, the prophets were all about gain so they wouldn't speak the truth. Well, Brother Dave, surely, surely there's somebody that's wanting to do right in Ezekiel's day. What about, what about Brother Dave the priest? Look at verse 26 of Ezekiel 22. The priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and the profane. They have made no difference, or neither have they showed difference, rather, between the unclean and the clean. And have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. In other words, not only the prophets not telling the truth, neither are the priests. Well, what about the politicians, Brother Dave? They didn't call them politicians in Ezekiel's day. They called them princes. What about the political leaders? Look at verse 27. I want you to see this. Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood, to destroy souls, to get dishonest gain. Are any of you... Uh, feeling the same way I'm feeling about politicians today? Anybody know what I'm talking about? You ever get frustrated with your politicians? A guy asked me one time in my country, how can you tell if one of our politicians in Washington is lying? How can you tell if they're lying? I said, I don't know. How can you tell if they're lying? He said, if their lips are moving, they're pretty much lying. That's their truth. Politicians, many of them would rather lie than speak the truth when the truth would be to their advantage. Why do they lie? Because they're on the take. It's all about greedily getting gain. So there's no help among the prophets. Not going to find any truth coming from the priests, the princes? Well, surely some of the people want to do right. Really? Well, look, if you would, please, at verse number 27 of Ezekiel 22. Her princes in the midst thereof are like ravening wolves, devouring the prey. Verse 28 references the prophets again. Look down now at verse number 29. The people of the land have used oppression, exercised robbery, and have vexed the poor and needy. They have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. So there's no help coming from the prophets, the priests, the princes, the people. After listening, all of these folks that are not willing to do right or speak truth, look at verse 30 again. I want you to see the setting of the verse. And I sought for a man among them. Who's the them? Among all the corrupt prophets among all the corrupt priests, among all the corrupt princes, among all the corrupt people. God says, I'm looking to try to find one person. Surely there's one person who will speak the truth. I sought for a man among them. Tragically, he says, I couldn't find one. The setting. Number two, I want you to see this. Not only the setting, but number two, the search. I want you to see what God is looking for in the man he is searching that will serve him. Watch again verse 30. I sought for a man among them that should do two things. Would you watch? Make up the hedge and, number two, stand in the gap before me for the land. I want you to look up for a minute. Brother Larry, years ago, I took a trip to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. 
I don't know how many of you are familiar with an event that literally rocked our country in 1863. From 1863 to 1865, it literally tore the fabric of our country called America apart. It was called the Civil War. How many of you know what I'm talking about? North and South divided. They say it was over slavery. Slavery was a critical issue that needed to be dealt with. But to be honest with you, more than just slavery was states' rights. Do the states have certain rights or does the federal government dictate to the states it was a mess? and our country was pulled apart over a stretch of three days in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania one of the most pivotal battles of the Civil War took place thousands and thousands of young men from the Confederacy thousands of young men from the Army of the North the Union Army lost their lives over a three day period of time anybody familiar now with what I'm talking about? it was an incredible battle at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania Brother Larry, you can now take a tour of that battlefield you insert a CD into your CD player in your car and it says pull up to this monument and on your left, there'll be a monument of a guy on a horse. And sometimes the horse will be depicted on the monument with a front hoof up, a back hoof up, and the other feet on the ground. Sometimes both back feet are on the ground, both front feet up. I didn't understand what all that stood for. Found out that that means things. If one foot up is in the front, one in the back, it means the, the, the rider on that horse was injured in the battle, but he survived. If uh, both feet are you know, on the ground in the back, but up in the front, it means he was injured in the battle, did not survive. It means all kinds of interesting things. But as you're going through the battlefield, they have you stop at periodic places and they tell you what happened at that spot during the three-day battle at Gettysburg. Brother Larry, there's one spot as you're driving through there, they tell you to stop your car, put it in park, and they ask you to look to the left down into a part of the battlefield there. And there is down in the field there, there's what's left of a, a rock wall. The guy who's narrating on the CD explains that that rock wall was built by the troops of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, they built that rock wall to duck down behind like I'm ducking down behind these chairs so that as they fired musket shots at the Army of the North, they could then duck down behind the wall and be protected. The guy that was doing the narrating went on to explain that over the course of day number one of that battle, that rock wall was much bigger than it looks now when you're taking the tour. In fact, he went on and explained this. The musket shots that would be fired from the army of the north and the cannonballs that would be fired from those massive cannons would hit that rock wall and it would create huge breaches in the wall, gaping holes in the wall. You say, preacher, what's this got to do with verse 20? Verse 30 of Ezekiel 22. I saw from men among them that should make up the hedge. The phrase make up a hedge means literally build a wall. I'm looking for a man who will build a wall of protection. Now stay with me. These guys had built a wall. They would duck down behind it. The sheer volume of cannon fire and sheer volume of musket rounds coming at the wall would literally cause the wall to have gaping holes in it. And Brother Larry, the guy who's doing the narrating, said this, one by one, southern soldiers would do this. When a cannonball would hit the wall and create a gaping hole, these guys would literally get up from their knees, stand up, and would literally plug the hole in the wall with their body until they took so much musket shot. Again, I'm not trying to be gross here. I'm not trying to be unnecessarily graphic. Flesh, body parts, bones flying everywhere. He would describe how some of those cannonball rounds would come and literally sever arms or heads from the bodies of these young men. Of course, their body is now lying there lifeless as a corpse. And they would take the shot themselves, trying to plug the hole in the wall. When their body would no longer stop the barrage of fire, 
He said what would happen is from behind the wall, their counterpart soldiers would literally pull the dead corpse out of the hole in the wall and the next man would step up and plug the hole in the wall with his body until he was riddled through with musket fire. And when he was no longer breathing, the next guy would pull his body out of the way and plug the hole in the wall with his body. And one by one, soldiers trying to build a line of defense for their cause died, sacrificing themselves. Now I want you to look at verse 30 again. I sought for a man among them, among all the corruption, that should make up the hedge, literally build a wall, watch the next phrase, and stand in the gap. He's literally talking about what I'm describing. I'm looking for somebody who will love me enough, they'll build a wall of protection. And if necessary, be willing to plug the hole in the wall with their own body. We're talking about a sacrificial act. You say, preacher, what has that got to do with a missions conference? But what I'm trying to help you understand is this. We're living in a world where it's all about us. It's all about me. It's about my agenda. It's about my comfort. It's about me enjoying life. I mean, you know, uh, it, it, that's what it's about. Isn't it? It's about living, as a guy told me one time, it's about living preacher, the American dream. I mean, I want to have things and I want to enjoy life. That's what it's all about. Some total, nothing more. Enjoying life. Can I say this? There's more to life than that. The setting is corruption everywhere. The search is for a man who will be sacrificial enough Build a wall, and if necessary, sacrifice himself in that wall. Down through Christian history, the Lord has called out people from churches just like this to serve on foreign mission fields. Brother Larry, I'm thinking of Jim Elliott. I'm thinking of Elizabeth Elliott, his wife, who wrote that wonderful book, Through Gates of Splendor. Any of you read that know what I'm talking about? Do you know Jim Elliott was an athlete? He was a runner. He was a wrestler. His friends said to him, Jim, don't go to Ecuador. Don't go to Ecuador. Why don't you stay in America? You, you, you could run in the Olympics. You could wrestle in the Olympics. You could gain some notoriety. Why don't, why don't you just stay in America and become wealthy, then go to the mission field? And Jim Elliott made this phenomenal statement. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. They kept pressing him, Jim, wait, please don't go to Ecuador. And pastor, it's not near as well known a statement, but I love it better. He bowed his head when they were pressing him to earn a nice living before leaving to go to Ecuador. They said he bowed his head and out loud in frustration he prayed, Oh God, save me from the dreaded asbestos of materialism. Save me from the dreaded asbestos of materialism. Asbestos is a flame retardant. Save me from that which will extinguish my passionate love for the Lord. It's called materialism. I'm going to go to Ecuador. And he went. If you'll remember, Jim Elliott was a team player. Jim knew that I can't do this by myself. Along with he and his wife had gone another gentleman by the name of Pete Fleming. And Pete Fleming's wife... But Jim knew we needed at least three more people. He found his next three volunteers in the form of a young pilot by the name of Nate Saint. He found another volunteer in the form of a gentleman by the name of Roger Udarian, who was actually a military man, fought at the Battle of the Bulge. And then he found his final recruit in the form of a Northwestern University law student. 
And they formed a team of five and they began to fly Nate Saint's airplane over that sandbar in Ecuador and they dropped down trinkets onto the sandbar trying to let the Ecuadorian people know we mean you no harm, we're coming with good intentions. The only problem was the people of Ecuador at that time were savage, naked savages. They were called Aka Indians. Aka is Ecuadorian for naked savage. And you'll remember, if you know anything about the story, how they finally landed the plane, eased it up to the sandbar, going to make face-to-face contact with the Ecuadorian people. And evidently, Brother Larry, at first, the overtures coming from those savages coming out of the jungle were friendly, but they were experts at holding their spears behind their back. And at some point, they brought the spears up and threw their lancets, their spears, through the five bodies of those missionaries who were approaching them. I don't know if any of you have ever seen pictures from that tragic day in 1953 when those five missionaries were killed, but it was literally world news. By the way, in 1953, my grandmother was a collector of Life magazines. She collected them, Brother Larry, for years as a small boy would visit my grandmother and grandfather's home, and I'd go through the Life magazines. I found one one summer, totally black. The cover was black. It had white letters on it, five missionaries die tragically in Ecuador. I thumbed through the pictures inside and they were quite, quite graphic. Taken from a distance, but you could see what had happened. These missionaries, brother, they didn't turn and run when they saw the spears. They just kept walking toward these Indians. Every spear went through the front of them, not through the back. They hadn't turned and run. They were pierced through the front, trying to let them know we love you. We come with the message of Jesus and how much he cares for you. You know, when I read that article from 1953 in Life magazine, the guy who wrote the article basically said this, five gifted, talented young men died on a sandbar in Ecuador for what? For what? In other words, they wasted their lives. For what? But see, in 1953, they didn't know the rest of the story, did they? They didn't know that Jim Elliott's wife would remain. They didn't know that Pete Fleming's wife would remain and continue sharing the gospel with those naked savages. And many of them would come to know Jesus as Savior. In fact, an entire village would come to Christ. By the way, there was a movie made called End of the Spear. Have any of you seen the movie? It tells the whole story. It's powerful, isn't it? Did you watch the extras at the end of that movie? Because Nate Saint's son, Steve Saint has with him in America in the extra scenes, the extra footage, the very man who killed his daddy. Do you remember that? And they're driving through a drive through at McDonald's somewhere in the United States, and they pull up, and he rolls his window down, and through a little box there, a voice says, may, may I take your order? And uh, Steve Saint orders a couple of burgers, and then they turn the camera to the Ecuadorian gentleman, and he's watching that and trying to figure out wh- wh- what's going on. And then they ease up to the next window, and the window <laughs> opens up, and the food comes out. And the Ecuadorian man's face, it's worth a thousand words. He's saying, man, we got to get one of these in Ecuador. How do you just talk into that? <laughs> food shows up. Man, that's good stuff, isn't it? Do you know that man in his entire village would have never come to Jesus had not five missionaries built a bridge of blood to the Ecuadorian people? willing to sacrifice their life. See, it's not just about our comfort and about our agenda and living a good life. It's about living for Jesus. I sought for a man among them that should build a wall and if necessary, plug the hole in the wall with his own body before me for the land. The setting, the search, look at the last phrase of verse 30. The sigh. It's almost like 
God is sighing when he says, but I found, what's the last word? I found what? Would you say it one more time? I found, one more time, I found none. Literally, not a single person. I hope over the next two days, we'll all realize there's more to life than just living for us. There's a life worth living, and it's living for Jesus Christ. You say, well, Brother Dave, I'm one person. What can one person do? A lot. When yielded to the Lord. Now, with this, I'm going to close. I wish I had it to show to you on the screen. I don't. But, Brother Larry, in our country, you've traveled in this section of the United States. In the state of Louisiana, there is a prison called the Louisiana State Penitentiary. For years, the Louisiana State Penitentiary has had the reputation of being the most evil, wicked, godless prison in the entire United States prison system. There are over 5,000 hardened criminals that annually, annually reside at the Louisiana State Penitentiary. They have a death row there. Every year, guys are put to death through lethal injection because of their horrendous crimes that they've committed. 90% of the men there are serving either a life sentence or are or, or, or on death row. Brother Larry, in one year, 40 murders were committed at the Louisiana State Penitentiary inside the prison. Inmates killing other inmates. It was that godless of a place until 16 years ago. 16 years ago, they hired a new warden for the Louisiana State Penitentiary. His name was Burl, B-U-R-L, Kane, C-A-I-N. Burl Kane is a graduate of Grambling State University in Mississippi. He has a degree in law enforcement, but more important than his law enforcement degree, Burl Kane is a committed Christian, a lover of Jesus Christ, and a preacher of the gospel. He went into the Louisiana State Penitentiary, and Brother Larry, he did something that has never been done there. He started bringing in evangelists like myself. He started bringing in preachers. He started bringing in choirs. And they have a big outdoor arena. It looks like a rodeo arena. And they'll bring all 5,000 of these men that are serving time there. They'll put them in that arena. They put up a big stage, and they preach the gospel and sing to them. And so they've done that now for 16 years. Do you know the prison has totally changed? In fact, if I could play it for you, you'd hear a young man say this. The Louisiana State Penitentiary is no longer the largest prison in America. It is the largest prison church in America. There are three church buildings on the property. Young men who have gone there serving a life sentence or on death row that have come to faith in Jesus Christ are now Bible teachers mentoring, discipling, leading to Christ new fellows that are coming into the prison because they've committed a crime. And what used to be filled with solitary confinement cells is now more like a dorm living community. Brother Larry, if you've not seen this, I'll show it to you this afternoon on the internet. I've never seen anything like it. And what these guys will tell you if you talk to them is this. What's happened is this. One man came here to the most horrible place in the country and he brought the love of Jesus and it's transformed our community. May I say this, if a community of hardened criminals can be changed through the gospel preaching and gospel sharing of one person, do you know what? Birmingham, England can be affected. Your community and the world can be impacted. 
if we will realize it's not about us. It's about serving our King and declaring His gospel. Can I have an amen right there? Amen. Father, I pray that you would speak to us today, Lord, and I pray that from this group at Bethel Free Baptist Church, as you're looking for a man, a woman, a young person who will serve you in a selfless, sacrificial way, Lord, I don't mean that anyone that serves you is going to give their life necessarily, though they might. But Lord, you are looking for people who will live not for themselves, but for a higher cause, a bigger cause, the cause of the gospel to declare to our world, Jesus loves you. He can transform, totally change your life if you'll come to him and admit that you are what the Bible says we all are, and that's sinners. And Lord, if we will call upon you, invite you into our heart and life, you will come in, forgive our sin, give us the assurance of an eternity with you in heaven, transform our life and give us something really worth living for. Not just for the now, not just for the temporal, but Lord, something to live for that will last throughout all eternity. Father, I pray you would challenge us during these days. Lord, perhaps someone even in this church, you will challenge to serve you on some mission field to yield their life to do exactly that. And Father, if you should do that, Father, I pray they would willingly surrender. Now, Lord, we can certainly pray for missionaries. Lord, we can give monetarily to support missionaries. Or Lord, we can go ourselves. Father, I pray we'd be willing to do whatever you call us to do. One last time, Lord, today I ask that you would bless our going to Kenya next week. Father, would you empower your word as it is proclaimed? Father, I do pray that many hundreds, yea, thousands would come to know you as Savior when they hear, Jesus, of the love you have for them. Father, change us this week in this place. And Father, for all you do, we'll thank you and give you great glory. Before I close, I want to say one last thing to you as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. Brother Larry said something at the very beginning of the service. He said, the Lord is not asking you to do something that you can't do. The Lord is asking us to do something we can do. We ought to be willing to do, and that's serve Him aggressively, faithfully. Give to His work. And for some to go to that field. There's a young man here this morning. I don't think he's here this afternoon, but he was here this morning. Brother Larry referenced him. He's on his way to Chicago, Illinois to work with the street young people in the city of Chicago. There's not a more desperately needed ministry than that anywhere in our country. Thank God for him. That'll not be an easy task, but it sure will be a rewarding task as the lives of young men and young women are transformed through the power and the love of Jesus Christ. All I want you to think about this afternoon before I finish my prayer is this. What if God were to call you? What if God were to call you, young man, young lady, mom, dad? What if God were to call you to some specific area of service for him? Would you be willing to do it? I'm not up here just blowing smoke about that. I sat in an attorney's office the day before we left to come here, and I told that attorney, I said, I was headed down the road to do exactly what you're doing as a high school student. I wanted to be an attorney.
That's not what God wanted. I have never one time regretted giving up my ambition to follow the leadership of the Lord, to be a preacher of the gospel. By the way, I've traveled the world preaching the gospel. It's been an honor to do it. It's been a privilege. Well, Brother Dave, you gave up a lot. No, didn't give up really anything. It's been a privilege to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. What if God were to call you? Would you do it? Would you do it? Lord, I do pray. Because, Lord, there are some younger folks in this room. There's some older. Lord, I'm 52. I'm no longer a young man. But, Lord, I sure thank you that for 27 years, whether individually or with my family, we've been able to crisscross our country and the world telling people how much you love them, that Jesus, you died on an old rugged cross for one reason, to forgive their sin. You were buried, but you rose again three days later. And you long to be their Savior. And if they will merely come to you and invite you into their heart and life, you will do what you promised to do. You'll forgive their sin. You'll save them eternally. and Give them the assurance of a glorious home in heaven with you when they depart this life. Father, I thank you for the power of that message. And Lord, it is my prayer over the next two nights that Lord, from this gathering, there would be some who would certainly be willing to pray. Some that would certainly be willing to give of their material resources, but Lord, way more important than that. I pray there would be hearts here that would be willing, if you call them, to go themselves. Lord, not just to a a location far outside Birmingham, England, but Lord, go to this city, this city of almost 6 million plus people. Oh Lord, please, stir us to reach this city with the gospel. Change Bethel Baptist Church, oh God, to a place that is alive and passionate about sharing your truth. Father, ignite within the hearts of those that know you in this room, an insatiable appetite, an unquenchable fire of passion to serve you. Change us, O oh God, I pray. We'll thank you and give you all the glory. Because we ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name, and for your glory alone. Amen. Look up at me just a moment. Brother Larry, you can go ahead and come. I just want to say this. How many of you have been down into the city center and participated in the open-air events with the church. We were there yesterday, not doing an open-air event, but just walking through. Brother Larry took us to the very spot where you set up. It was probably 15, 20 feet from that spot where I had the privilege of talking to some of those Muslim young men who were handing out their materials. I don't even know how to calculate how many people walked past us while we were standing there, but Brother Larry, it had to be hundreds upon hundreds of people. And I kept saying to your pastor, I've got to be here sometime when you do this. I've, I've got to come down here into the open air and participate with you. What an opportunity to sing and share the gospel in the open air in Birmingham, England. What a privilege. I told my wife when we got back in the car, I said, and told her last night too, I said, when you see all those people, it's hard to get over it. 
your heart's burdened. Every time I've come to this country, starting back in 1991, 92, 90, whenever it was we came over the first time, I told your pastor this, it's true. I said, every time I've come, I've not wanted to leave for several reasons. I fall in love with the British people every time I'm here. I love you guys. hope you know that. I do. I love the way you speak. I love your mannerisms. I love your history, your customs. I love everything about it. The main reason I don't want to leave is this. This is a country that desperately needs Jesus. And I sometimes wonder, am I wasting my time in the United States when I could be someplace like this sharing the gospel? My point is this, folk. We've got to ratchet up our efforts to reach not only this community but the world with the message of Jesus' love. I hope the end of this week on Tuesday night, that will be the end result. We'll be motivated like never before to accomplish that very task. Amen? Amen.